Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Dan Shapiro. Dan Shapiro is a man on a mission to help physicians and other providers of care and the medical health administrators that work with them understand the reality of healthcare burnout, a big problem in modern society, especially in this country. He is currently the director of the Chartist Center for Burnout Solutions, where he and his team assist leaders of multi-hospital systems with efforts to reduce burnout and the turnover of high-value physicians, nurses, advanced practice providers, and other staff. If we look back at Dan's education, he goes all the way back to my alma mater, Vassar College, where he graduated with a BA in psychology before going on to the University of Florida for his doctorate in clinical psychology. He completed a postdoctoral degree in medical crisis interventions at Harvard University. He held faculty positions at the University of Arizona, as well as Penn State, rising to the chair and professor of humanities at Penn State College of Medicine. In 2017, he developed a systematic method for assessing and addressing burnout, leading to consulting services focused on multi-hospital systems. After decades of working in academia, rising to the position of chair and vice dean, he left this all to pursue a career looking at reducing burnout full-time with colleagues at the Chartist Center. Dan is a frequent contributor to the thought leadership in the physician burnout space. In 2003, Random House published his landmark memoir about one physician's burnout titled Delivering Dr. Amelia. This was required reading at some colleges and medical schools around the country. Dan's additional thoughts and writings have appeared in newspapers and periodicals and journals like the New York Times, the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science, New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and NPR's All Things Considered. As a hobby, he worked for 10 years as a weekly consultant to the hit television shows Grey's Anatomy, Private Practice, How to Get Away with Murder, and On Camera for the Discovery National Geographic channels. For me, Dan is a person who sees the world through a lens that not enough people are looking through. He's trying to help us all understand what is going wrong in the medical environment where care providers are struggling mightily with a modern system of delivering care, whether that's not understanding how to take care of the self, whether that is being burdened in tremendous ways by modern EMR systems or electronic medical health record systems, or administrative burdens that just don't make sense when it comes to how to practice medicine, or many other disparate ways that we are starting to see care providers struggling. And so in this conversation, we break down what's happening in the modern world of medicine and what's being done to unwind some of these problems. And Dan is at the forefront of this experience and his organization, Chartis, is working to help folks understand and deliver themselves from the stresses of medicine and become more functional, leaving us in the best position to help our patients achieve the best health care for themselves. So with that, let me introduce you to Dr. Dan Shapiro. Well, Dan, it's an absolute pleasure to connect with you again after a little bit of time. We first connected back in 2007 when you brought your mastery to the University of Arizona and taught us young uh, providers what it's like to understand physician 
conflicts, grief, stress, and now we're going to get into some of the world of burnout. So I'm I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, delighted. So I want to look into a paper you wrote called Beyond Burnout, a physician wellness hierarchy designed to prioritize interventions at the systems level. And uh, I love the piece there at the end called systems. And one thing in medicine that I think we've done a very poor job of understanding is to get away from reductionism and get towards a biological systems approach where everything's connected, intertwined and works hand in hand. And when I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, this fits exactly with, with what I think the world should be doing as far as looking at this situation that you wrote in the abstract. Burnout has been implicated in higher physician turnover, reduced patient satisfaction and worsened safety. But understanding the degree of burnout in a given physician or teams does not directly does not direct leaders to solutions. The model proposed integrates a long list of variables that may ameliorate burnout into a prioritized, easy to understand hierarchy. Modified from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the model directs leaders to address physicians' basic physical and mental health needs first. And then it goes on to other stuff that's important. I think the fact that you put in there looks at the physical and mental health needs first, which is something that physicians have in general never done. We've always looked at everybody else's needs first, suffered ourselves no matter what was needed, time-wise, function, everything. So the patient always is at the front of that level. You really are flipping this paradigm on its head. So let's sort of break this down. Before we get into that piece, let's go and I want you to explore with us how you became this gifted professional self-care whisperer that you are, that I had the pleasure of seeing all those years ago and really opening up, you know, my own self in a lot of ways, because I was pretty closed at the time when I met you. Uh, well, thanks first for that, that really generous um, introduction. Um, I, I started as a psychologist. I'd had a cancer experience myself in my 20s, between ages 20 and 25, in and out of treatment, a bunch of relapses, bone marrow transplant, relapsed after that. So I met a lot of you know, young, young physicians. Um, and I did a training program at Harvard focused on designing new psychological models for helping medical patients. I really felt like when I had cancer, the physicians I came in contact with who were supposed to help me with the psychology of what I was experiencing only had the psychiatric model to help them and it was really the, it was very pathologizing and sort of the wrong, I didn't need a diagnosis. I needed someone who said, hey, it's really common to go through these things when you're sick, here's some tips. So um, I worked on that. I took my first academic uh, position as a young assistant professor and started treating medical patients. And then a physician who was from a specialty we sometimes stereotype as being cold and uncaring. I won't say which one, surgery. <laughs> You know, came to see him. <laughs> did a um, did a courageous piece of work in treatment, and then referred me a bunch of his colleagues. And then the risk management people found me, and pretty soon I had this practice full of physicians. Um, at the time that you and I met, and I was working with the integrative medicine program at Arizona, emotional disclosure was sort of the rage in the psych literature. This idea that if we unpack some of the experiences we've had, it'll help us. Um, not only psychologically, but immunologically, um, you know, endocrine functionally better, et cetera. It, it held out all sorts of promise. And I had noticed in uh, a number of those first physician patients and nurse patients I'd had, um, 
some tendencies to partially that we had trained you to adopt, I think, as you know, in, in training that denying your own needs, ignoring your own needs, squelching difficult emotional experiences is really the best way to get through and be a functioning physician. And we we teach it from the first moments of anatomy. Right. I did this, I did this very informal study, never published it, but I asked medical students right before they went into anatomy how they were feeling about going in for their very first anatomy experience. And about 75% of them said they were really freaked out. Like the idea of touching a dead body, that it might bring up all their the deaths in their lives, that they were totally panicked. And then I was there when they all came in and met their first cadaver. And you could only tell that about two of them were anxious because they left the room to throw up. The other 98% looked fine. And I realized that the meta message in that room is you have to be able to separate what's on your face from what's in your heart to do this job well. We're, and we've been teaching that way for centuries. And I think it is 100% true. As a patient, I need a physician to look confident and stable. You're the captain of my ship when I'm vulnerable. But if it's the pervasive way people are in the world with their spouses, you know, outside of medicine, um, with their friends, always sort of just trying to cover up their emotional experiences, I think, and I thought then that there could be a profound cost to that. So that's sort of where the, some of those exercises, I designed the days we were together really carefully. I spent a lot of time thinking about, we would be playful together, there'd be a little bit of disclosing and we would build to this sort of culminating exercise that you astutely called out as sort of the, the, the big moment. Yeah, and I wanna get back to that exercise later, but let's let the landscape be laid out right now, because I think most people who are not in the medical community or have not touched the medical community, and definitely not to the degree that you have, may or may not have any clue what's actually happening in the world of medicine. I mean, people are starting to understand we're having a shortage of docs. COVID definitely put a massive constraint on the system by early retirement for a bunch of folks. But also there's something changing in the way people are coming out of training and what they want in care. So there's a really, the landscape from when I came out of medicine, medical school to now is just, it's vastly different. So what do we know right now about the landscape of medicine and specifically to this point, medical burnout? Like, And I'll bring this up in the context of, I just had a, 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 email stream with a bunch of my colleagues from UVA when we graduated together. Everyone wants to get together at one of these conferences coming up. And as the people are sort of checking back in, they're giving information about, hey, this is what I got. I got two kids doing this, that, and the other thing. And and one of them towards the end was saying, well, you know, I, I left my practice a while ago. I was burnt out. I was done. And that was shocking. Like, wow, you actually left your practice. So like there's that touches me. Like I know now somebody who quit medicine. And then lo and behold, about Two days later, another person said, I no longer practice medicine and wanted to talk to me about integrative medicine. Would it be worth spending some time learning what I'm doing? But she hasn't touched patients in years. And so the landscape is clearly different. I mean, that's two out of what, 18, I think was on that. So that's a large number at, at, at our young age. So what's the landscape? Um, about 40% of practices lost at least one physician during and immediately after the pandemic. And some of it was retirements that were planned, but I think as you just noted, 
there were a lot of premature departures because the practice environment has changed fairly dramatically. Um, I think there are a bunch of variables conspiring, not only the pandemic, but there are massive financial pressures on the on the system that have led to all sorts of changes in the way practice is happening now. I'll just give a couple. One is we've had this um, just incredible number of mergers and acquisitions. So when you have mergers, that means that the decision-making goes upstream, farther away from the bedside. Um, and in autocratic systems, physicians often feel like the people making decisions just have no clue about what my life is, is really like. And in democratic systems or ones that are lean that way to be more inclusive, it's like we talk and talk and talk and nothing ever happens or nothing ever improves. It's just part, part of it is a product of having these massive systems. Another piece is that um, well-trained MBAs have noticed that there is access in our clinics, but patients, but, but there are access problems. In other words, of course, the fill rates in so many of our clinics are lower than they ought to be given the space and the number of people we have. Digging into that, they found out, wow, the scheduling templates, all these physicians, we've got thousands of them. Physicians are scheduling patients. Some want 20 minutes, some want 18, some want 45, some always want an hour with their patients. We, we can't do centralized scheduling to make ourselves outward facing towards the public in a way that, you know, it, 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 there's no standardization. So that has resulted in physicians losing control of their own calendars and it getting taken away. At the same time, the use of electronic health records, which I think all of us feel is are necessary, has been much clunkier and a more difficult experience, I think, than a lot of people expected. And it continues to be. You'd expect, oh, these things get installed, everyone gets used to it. We're all used to our phones, the software on our phones, and yet these are not like our phones. They continue to have evolutions and changes and um, our measurement of sort of the finding information and entering information in particular, or even knowing who on the IT team to contact if your whole system shuts down and you can't get in. I mean, all of that has been pretty painful because it's, you know, uh, some uh, machinery that we interact with pretty much uh, every day. A couple other recent factors. A lot of people delayed care during the pandemic and the patients coming in now are much sicker. So our case mix indexes, which is sort of this measure of how severe our patients are, have gotten worse. Lengths of stay um, uh, are, uh, there's a pressure to get people through the system really quickly. And so lengths of stay have gone up. At the same time, we have a lot of emergency room patients. We don't have a mental health system. So we've got a lot of people with mental illness coming into our emergency rooms, alcohol, substance issues, et cetera, clogging them up. So we don't have throughput through our hospitals. So it's really painful to be someone who cares desperately about patients working in these systems and watching people get suboptimal care and having a front row seat for it and having trained really hard to do great work and then having difficulty doing that. Ambulatory docs are trying to manage really complex patients outside the hospital using patient portal, which they don't really get paid for. The patient portal in particular is pretty amusing to me as an outside observer. It's a bit like if I was going to, I've been on a lot of planes recently, um, and it's a bit like I could get on and talk to my pilot 
and send them a message at any time I wanted. Or, you know, are we going to fly to my Aunt Barbara's house? And then if they don't respond fast, I can give them a low star rating. You know, it's just a crazy <laughs> system. You know, um, so, I, you know, we, we have started using that Maslow's hierarchy you mentioned. We create dashboards based on that now. And I'm working with a whole bunch of multi-hospital systems, some of the leading systems in the country. Um, and we find all sorts of really tough stuff that the physicians are facing. In one system, physicians getting an enormous number of these portal messages and no one helping to screen them. Working right next to uh, an office where a doc has a whole team screening them and doing all the interactions with the patients first and only sending to the doc the stuff that really requires their expertise. You know, like you, you probably don't need to look at every single prescription refill when a patient has been on them and is stable, you know, is on a med and has been for years and years and years. Um, so that's, I think, a collection of what's happening. In addition, payers have their own requirements often to approve interventions. Some of those are really onerous and silly, and it's just a bunch of additional work. We have found this sort of magic number. Once a physician spends more than two and a half hours a week interacting with an insurance company, their burnout goes up exponentially. It's a bit like sitting in traffic, only sitting in traffic when you can't also listen to a murder podcast or talk to your cousin. You know, I mean, it's a really yeah. stressful time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so all of these things coming together have made practice difficult. And that's, that's systems addition, right? There's always going to be the pieces that we surfaced in that exercise that, that you know, that even in a perfect system. Yeah. So if we, if we, if we try and unwind that a little bit, you know, so you think about it, physicians have always worked inordinate hours. So it's not the time commitment per se, that's driving burnout now. Cause if it was the two and a half hours on the, the, on the computer that easily was taken up by two and a half hours times in the past doing patient care work. So it's clearly something massively different. So when I think about, it, I would think about the loss of control physicians in general, somewhat controlling, which is good or bad, but the loss of control over, like to your point, the scheduling, like I know clearly I like 30 minutes with certain kids who have higher issues. I want an hour for an integrative consult. That's financially stupid, but it actually works in a system that we've built because we're private practice in the model that is to your point, top-down MBA driven. There's no way they're allowing that to happen because it's financially illiterate. So is, is that the biggest piece? Is it the lack of control that the physicians have basically given away so I'll, I'll tweak what you said a tiny bit we have found that after about 62 63 64 hours no matter how great those hours are burnout goes up i mean okay. i think losing per week that's a lot of hours so that's you know on a five if you're working five days a week that's more than 12 hours per day right that's a lot of hours and it begins to eat your family time your exercise your other things so so I agree with you that it, the quality of the hours really matters, but hours do, physicians are carbon-based life forms that also need rest. And <laughs> I'm away, as it turns out, much to everyone's surprise. Um, I'm as shocked as you are. Uh, yeah, but, but in addition, the quality of the hours um, and the control over those hours has dramatically changed. And some of it's from the moment a person arrives at their workplace, right? We had a doc who said, when I swipe in in the morning, if it's been raining, sometimes the parking gate goes up and sometimes it doesn't. 
So she is starting her day feeling disrespected and out of control from the very moment she arrives all the way through to, you know, when, when she closes up her charts at the end of the day in a system that she hasn't, that keeps changing and that she hasn't had impact on. Right. Yeah. Control. One of those interesting words I think about in medicine a lot, you know, and, and the lack thereof driving change within somebody. I think when you think about even that gate, that's a lack of control over the randomness of when it opens and when it doesn't. I I tend to f- fall into stoic philosophy a lot. And I look at that as a, I only have one option in this situation. It's my response to what's out there. And so if that, my response is always going to be a net negative and a struggle, then I'm always going to struggle. So it's trying to change wow. that narrative. I love that. And there are administrators and I'm negotiating right now with a system where there are some people in the system who really want us to do this burnout work. And there's some people inside the system in leadership roles who really believe that the doc should just be thinking differently, that they don't have any responsibility for improving the systems that docs are working in. And these are leadership leaders who have enormous impact on how their the physicians working in their system and the APPs and the nurses are functioning. Um, it's, so on one hand, I love what you're saying. Hey, I can, I need to control my own response to this, which makes perfect sense when you don't have control of something. And it's a, it's a key coping skill for getting through the difficult things we all face in life. But at the same time, I think healthcare leaders bear a profound responsibility to make these systems more human friendly in a system. And and I think there are systematic ways to do that. Yeah. And I I don't mean those mutually exclusive. I mean, those in the time, in the time you're seeing it, you still have to make that choice. And then you're going to, based on that consistency of a dysfunction, you're going to want to work towards change. And that's sort of the way I've, I've tried to at least teach the young kids that come through my office. Hey, you know, you got two ways to look at the situation, pick the choice. And then afterwards let's work on unwinding that future so that you don't have to make that choice next time. But yeah, to your point, I think that's exactly right. So let's sort of start to go down what you've done now in this Maslow's hierarchy work and how you're working with folks. What is the current trajectory of self-care in institutions? And I guess yours is going to be probably way ahead of a lot of others. I know in in our office, we have our own way of trying to help people cope and move through situations. But what's the, what's the, and maybe this is, you know, the simple way of it, what's the best practices as you see it right now in helping folks with self-care in the world of provider-based relations? So most of our work focuses on what leaders can do to improve retention um, and reduce burnout in their workforce. So we we use that hierarchy and dashboards based on that hierarchy to identify actionable items. So we start with the physiologic. Are your people eating, sleeping, drinking, getting a chance to pee? And, and, And the first time I mentioned that thing about peeing to a healthcare leader, a hospital president who happened to be in the room with two acute care docs, the, the leader who was non-clinical said, really, this peeing thing is a thing? And the two acute care docs like booked in and said, yes, that's a thing. <laughs> it's hard to think about your patients when you have to pee all day. Right, right. right. Um, but if you, so we just start with the physiologic, which is a really, it leads downstream to other interesting conversations with leaders. Like, is your cafeteria an independent profit center 
Or is it designed to be a source of healthy calories for your people, no matter what hour they're working? If you if you treat it like it's it's a restaurant at the mall, you're going to close it at seven o'clock when most of the healthcare workers have gone away, and you it loses profitability. If you think about well, my real job is to make sure my people I I want to treat my people like assets, and I know that when they're dehydrated they don't think as well, or they're hungry they don't think as well, or function as well they're less safe. Then I'm going to keep it open even when it's a loss, and I'm going to make it possible for physicians and nurses to get through the line without needing to be Olympic athletes to get from their unit down, get food and go back. So it actually has real implications. The next part of the basics is mental health. Are your people depressed, anxious, using substances, suicidal? Um, And the Laura Breen Foundation has done an amazing job also making it possible for people to acknowledge their mental health histories um, and, and licensing and getting certified to work in an institution. So, and making sure that people have easy access to their own primary care physicians, which in some parts of the country is really a challenge because that is still unfortunately the entry point to mental health in our country. So that's sort of the basics. Pain is another one we've just started measuring and we've been shocked to discover that um, about 75% of nurses in their 50s will report having pain often or always. And that's pain being manifested. Yeah, being manifested as headaches, being manifested as any kind of pain. Yes, just any kind of chronic pain. We ask also separately about physical symptoms of stress, but as you as you know, I mean, you're you're gifted in this area. You can get pain through either psychological or physical pathways, right? If I want, I can create depression with back pain or back pain with depression potential. Like this, this sort of loop potentially but um just when talking about wellness activities and wellness offerings inside of or well-being offerings inside of systems uh it is clear to me that there's this massive deficit with not enough of us addressing pain much more aggressively in our population because it in turn drives turnover we found just a pocket of dental assistants recently who were about to leave in high numbers because they are in they're just in pain all day. And that's just a really hard way to live and hard to work. Um, up from there on our level, so that's the basics. Up from there is physical and emotional safety. We have found high numbers of, of both physicians and nurses who are struck bit and kick or spit on annually or more often. Um, you know, they're just, and that more commonly than prison guards, they're struck. Um, that's one thing if you're working with a toddler, you know, you need to, give them an injection and they kick, you know, that's different than working with a, you know, a 17 year old or a 40 or 50 year old, you know, and getting actively beaten up. Um, And that drives, that also drives turnover. Um, Up from there is respect. You feel respected by the things and people you interact with every day. That's everything from consult services, the people you work with shoulder to shoulder, the scheduling software, the, the electronic health record. And that's where we find a lot of the things that are possible to change and improve. For, for folks. Up from there is appreciation and connection. We often find a difference between what really makes people feel appreciated and what leadership thinks make people feel appreciated. One of my favorite slides is a health professional with wearing scrubs with a muffin uh, on her scrubs with a line through it. Like, I don't want any more muffins. I don't want, you know, 
banners, cupcakes, pizza parties, muffins. I don't want any of that crap anymore. You know, what makes people feel appreciated is when you sidebar them and say, hey, I'm, I really appreciate the work you did with this person or that person or when a patient reaches out or, you know, that or even just a high five from your nurse manager or your, the doc you work shoulder to shoulder with. Hey, great catch. That's what makes us feel seen and heard appreciated. Yeah. Connection. Go ahead. Connection's huge. Let me let me just tell you one thing. It's a little side on that because I think you you hit on two things I find super interesting. One is the the consistency of the the junk food that's given in the hospital system, especially to the nurses. I remember when COVID hit, our hospital system, the Novant system, had a screen on every computer that was purple, and on it said, "Get your shot. We'll give you donuts." And, and, and legitimately, I'm watching this thing. I'm going by and I'm saying, okay, so you're telling somebody if they go and get their shot, you're going to give them shit food that's actually going to increase their inflammation and make them feel actually worse. And then to your other point, you know, food after seven, I remember in residency, you had the griddle, everything was unhealthy. Even now, it's almost all what I would call ultra processed foods or stuff that's driving inflammation. So all the things that we need to unwind that physical piece, the systems of power are not bringing that down to the level that we actually are healing ourselves through the the physical nourishment of food and the and and the mental nourishment that follows it it's just incredible yeah i i talk about access to healthy calories that's sort yeah. of the buzzwords i try to use when talking about that um when we clean up things lower in the hierarchy burnout goes down it's not shangri-la because as 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 you know even in a perfect system, you're going to experience some really difficult, painful experiences, one, when making yourself vulnerable enough to try to heal other human beings who who, who are complex in a, yeah. you know, living in their own complex systems. But it's an imperative, and there's so much we can do to make these systems better. There's so much low-hanging fruit uh, when well-intentioned, motivated leaders come together. Um, it is... Uh, amazing how much progress and I, I also say how much cynicism goes away i think it's hard to work when you're angry and yeah. cynical and when you feel like well-intentioned leaders are doing the best they can to make your work life better people relax a little you know this it just feels better to be coming to work turnover goes down so that's that's really what i have focused my career on now for for a while and i i had a i was a vice dean and had tenure and an endowment i mean i'd sort of won the academic medical game i left all of that almost exactly a year ago um to pursue this sort of work just full-time because um because it is incredibly rewarding and i think it has massive impact I can't tell you how much I would agree with you on that. I still see far too much lackadaisical attitude at the corporate level, because it is corporations now, towards the issues that you're dealing with. And I'm grateful for the folks that you actually get to touch repeatedly over and over again, that get to see the best way to hopefully unwind the situation again and best being best today. There'll be more data coming next week and the week after, and the science is getting very clear. And to your earlier point about pathologizing, none of the pathologizing is of value. I, I've started to notice this in clinic, even with kids, you know, calling somebody ADHD, calling somebody autistic, calling somebody, it's a value zero. 
with the child, right? It's, hey, you know, you're a little inattentive. Let's talk about what that means to you and how we can unwind the part of it that frustrates other people. Like, is there something I can help you with? And But telling a child how he has ADHD or she has ADHD, I think really is sort of dysfunctional. And I think we do that now from for the insurance purposes primarily, but also for documentation purposes. But I don't think it should leave our mouths as much as providers of care to the child. I think your state or statement earlier when you're going through your own healthcare crises when you're in your 20s, you know, telling you you have X doesn't really change the outcome of how you want to feel about X. I think you want to be, you know, I, at least I think in my world, if I was suffering through what you were going through, I'd want somebody to go, hey, this is what's going on in your body, but here's what I'm going to do with you. And I'm going to walk with you hand in hand through this entire process. There's something to be said about the provider patient relationship that is connected. And I want to come back to that word. And I want you to sort of touch on that a little bit, because I think we're disconnecting through this EMR world. We're disconnecting through the fast visit, the patient provider relationship. And I think that's part of the biggest, for me, that's the major burnout point that I would come to. I fought EMR like a little child. I mean, I was terrible. I, I was the last one in our office to get off paper. I was the last one to stop bitching. It was all that because for me, it took my eyes off the patient and that's where I get frustrated. And I'm even still to this day, I rarely document in the patient room because I feel like I'm not connected and I want to be connected. Now it screws up my day because it takes me a lot longer to get through the patients, but that's just what it has to be. So let's, let's speak to that connection piece. And then after that, I want to segue into what happened in 07. I, I think we face a challenge in that we have too many patients, not enough docs. And that means that the math, uh, you know, we can't fight the math that says that if you get to this many people, our visits have to be shorter. Yep. And that's, that is a painful reality, I think. But to your point, the quality of those minutes whether the clinician has their face in the e in the computer the entire time versus being connected is a is a choice you know i think in some systems we're doing a better job at realizing the how to use the ehr so that we can get things compensated and documented and not extra not a lot of extra clicks and you know, buttons and words, but I am sympathetic to leaders who are trying to say, I have an imperative to my community to get more people through the doors. Um, and I recognize that that threatens the physician patient relationship by making these visits drive through. I, I mean, I get that. I think we're going to have to continue to experiment with care models where, where, different people are delivering different parts of, of the care so that physicians can be doing the parts that really require their level of understanding and education and knowledge. But I think we're far from ideal right now. North Carolina is a little bit ahead on this piece, at least in the Medicaid world. You know, in our, in our office now, we have our own clinically integrated network. And as part of that clinically integrated network, we have funds to hire our own care coordinators, our own therapists, our own nutritionists, our own uh, gap closure folks. And what that has allowed, and I'll just give you a quick example that has really enhanced my provider feeling around patient care is I had a new onset 
um, patient with anorexia. She rolled in. She had been battling this for quite a while. So when I'm seeing her, I'm seeing her towards the late end when she's really skinny, really struggling, you know, needs inpatient. We're not messing around. And I don't really navigate the inpatient world of eating disorders well. I don't do it enough to have quick finger time yeah. access to this information. But now our care coordinator walked in with me. I introduced them. I said, here's what's going on. This woman is going to help you walk you through this whole process. And it turned out that the family that was involved had some extenuating reasons not to want to be inpatient that were very valid. And this person over two hours helped them navigate the system, get admitted and get right. And she's doing great. Oh, that's tremendous. That is because not something that help. I, yeah, that's not something I could have done. I would have been on the phone for probably four hours trying to navigate it and trying to get, I probably wouldn't have gotten the data out of the family that I would have needed to help them. So that I think is the future. If we can get the systems in power to see that the extender, the physician extender helpers really take the take the stress off of the provider, but also put the patient back at the center of the care, which for me, I, when I sleep at night, that's why I sleep well, because I know the kids at the center of the care, not me, not the care extender. I need to do my own self-care, but the kid still needs to remain the focus of everything. I love the way you just frame that. There, there's a, a meta message in there that I also think is really cool, which is I have my area of expertise. The other people working in my office have their level, their expertise, and they don't necessarily overlap. Just because I know the mist, you know, about more about the mysteries happening inside the human body doesn't mean that I know how to navigate an inpatient network, you know, well for for admitting a kid with anorexia. Like that's right. um, that's a lovely way to frame it. Right. And it and to your to follow up on your point a little bit more, the provider, the care coordinator who was involved in that case had never really spent much time in eating disorder. She's now our eating disorder specialist. We had four other ones in the past year, which is a bit odd. I don't know if it's just timing, whatever, but she's now the person who, and now she's fascial at it. And so we're in a lot of ways. And what, one of the other things we're trying to do in our offices, each physician or care pro, um, providers actually subspecializing to try and keep the vol the value of the services in the office, super high to decrease referrals, which keeps costs down, but also helps the patient again, stay at the center of the integrative model. And so I think that's again, getting into that, reality of what this needs to look like in the future. So we're getting a little bit away from where we wanted to go. So let's, let's, I'm going to dial it back. You know, you were profoundly influential in my life back in 07. Yeah. And, and I remember when we sat down in that room of 78 of us around in chairs, sitting around in a circle, and you asked us all to write a letter to a person that has been harmed or was deceased on our watch if I remember correctly, exactly how you asked. I, I remember the words. Yeah, oh. and it was because, at least in my case, and I only speak for myself, coming out of residency, I held on to a, a child who died on my watch, which was exceedingly painful and even brings up little emotion right now. And and I and I took that, that project to heart. I wrote that letter and I read it out loud after you said to read it out loud. And, and the liberation of the stress around that that I had not spoken to since that day was profound. Hmm. So 
I think this is something we don't get in medicine enough. And I talk to the medical students that I train now that this is going to happen to them. To your point, we're under stress constantly with patients. Things will not go according to plan all the time. COVID was very clear, a wake-up call for a lot of folks in that. But how are people going down that road? Like you gave us an amazing gift by sitting us in a room that we could all share communally, share our energies and release that which was was held within us and 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 move on. How, are you using that model at all anymore? And and again, I don't want to put you on a, you yeah, know, hey, that was I, great. Now you're not doing it. But that was profound for me. Well, I first, I so appreciate you uh, sharing that with me. That's a real special moment. Um, the instructions to that were, I want you to take 15 minutes and write a letter to a patient about something unresolved. The patient need not be living. You're never going to mail the letter. Your only job is to write honestly and from the heart about something that is for you still unresolved. Yeah. And about 90% of the docs and those, I still have, I have over, I think it's 300 of those letters accumulated from the years I did that exercise. And I went back and I looked at the themes in those letters because they have really informed the work I've done since around this piece of, even in perfect systems, these things are going to happen. You're gonna potentially witness horrible tragedy. You're gonna have a front row seat, despite all of your amazing training and, and all the time and energy you have invested in healing and curing, you're gonna have a front row seat to horrible things happening to good people through no fault of their own and no fault of your own. Second, you might experience yourself betraying a patient. You might give them the wrong medication. You might mess up a surgery. You might have a front row seat to your own limitations. And those are gonna have, at times, horrible consequences and then have to live with that. And that's one of the, I think that's what makes going into medicine, nursing, being an APP require so much courage because that's, for a lot of us, it's an inevitable experience. The third one is you can end up betrayed by your patients, blamed for things that aren't your fault, um, sued for things you had nothing to do with. You can end up betrayed by colleagues. You know, you refer a patient for a surgery that you think will save their life and instead it harms them or colleagues who treat a patient you really care about callously um, or a system that behaves that way. And then finally, the last one is sometimes patients come to us looking for medical cures to problems that are not curable that way. You know, they, they want help with things that are part of their lives or a cause of poverty or from poverty or, you know, and you can have a front row seat to just, you have this, huge number of tools and none of them will fit what the patient is bringing and the patient is angry and upset and in desperate need. So even if we clean up everything in these systems, perfect electronic health records, plenty of time with every patient, this work, I think we have to acknowledge that the work takes enormous courage because there are personal costs that accumulate over time to doing it. Yeah, And that's what I learned from those listening and being part of all of those letters. In addition to the fact that the way we train people in medicine has also cost this idea that you should suppress anything you've experienced because you need to look, because looking professional and in control at all times is more important than processing what you've experienced. 
Yeah. And I don't know how to separate those two. Cause I think clearly if you look rattled in front of a patient, that's not great for the patient, but at the same point to suppress all your feelings and repress them over time and keep them locked away is a complete nightmare. I mean, how many books do we have? Body keeps the score now, Basil van der Kolk. I mean, you know, everything by Gabor Mate, we know that we're killing ourselves internally by holding on to these feelings that we haven't released. And again, I just want to thank you for the gift of that was the first time I had opened the door on my own closed, repressed feelings. And since then, I've continued to do a ton of work around release because so cool. it, feel, it feels like shit to hold them. I'm just saying it's just, you know, you, you were you were That's you were great. the. You, you were the catalyst to a movement that has continued for 15, 16, 17 years since then. Yeah, super cool. And again, I I, I just thank you for that piece. But cool. so, you know, as we continue to unwind, and I and I and part of this conversation, I really wanted to be for providers to to feel that it's okay to do this, right? Like part of this process of what you're opening the door for is people to be like, this is normal. This shouldn't be, you know, that I'm broken. I need help. No, 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 no. To your point, it's it takes courage to become a physician, and it doesn't it doesn't take courage to repress all those feelings. Take courage to continue to release all that stuff so you can be the best person. And I think of this as again showing up for my kids in the office. If I'm broken, I'm not showing up for them. So I better do my side work so I can keep showing up day in and day out, and I can hold that that space for them when they're struggling. Cause that's the other thing I've had to learn is how do you hold space for somebody when they're struggling? Cause my ethos pre, you know, integrated medicine was not holding space for folks. It was get them in, get them out, help them out, you know, lovingly, but not holding space. So I, I don't know if I have a question in there so much as I think that's sort of what I'd love to see more providers there feel were... that it's okay to do what you're asking sort of two different pieces to what you just said. First, the just to clarify the exercise, Docs wrote the letters and didn't know what I was going to do next. After people had written and pens were down, I said, who will read? And I had one rule, and that is that you had to be touching someone while you read or someone needed to be touching you. And usually yeah. people put their arms on folks and then the letters started and they were generally incredibly moving. Yeah. I used to think to myself, these are a sniffle fest. Like, you know, they were really intense. Yeah. But afterwards, after everyone had read, I asked who heard your words that you could have spoken coming out of someone else's mouth. And I think that might have been more important than the content of the letters, this sense of the universality of those kind of five themes yeah. playing out, you know, in different specifics right. uh, uh, across the room. So I, I think your point about the universality and the validation, I'm just delighted that it landed in that way. Um, to your other point about using your own insights and recognizing that patients need that too by making space is something I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. I have thought that, boy, if we're not at our best selves, we can't show up for our patients. But the way you have advanced it beyond that to say, I recognize that people need space for their own emotional world and I need to create that in the way I work with my 
patients is is not a piece I've I've really thought a lot about. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's it's um I it it formed itself out of my own deep work. I've been doing some men's work for a while now. And and it became very clear to me that when I when I do that, I think my patients respond a lot better to my ask of them. And again, I don't consider myself a healer of them. I consider myself a person to help them open the doors to self-healing. Mm. My 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 world after Emory was I'm going to fix people. And in the past 20, whenever I graduated, 96, in the past 18 years, I flipped that entire narrative to my job is not to heal people, it's to allow them to heal themselves. And that just simple switch in the mindset for me, I think I've seen dramatically better outcomes in my patients because it's it's not goal-directed as so much as opening doors for people to find their path. And I think of the most recent book that I read that I'm absolutely in love with now is The the Carpenter and the Gardener by um, Alison Gopnik. And it's a very, it's a anthropologic view of history of parenting. Mm. And essentially we are in a carpenter's world right now where we are chiseling the perfect box or chair or whatever. And our children have to follow the pattern that we're chiseling for them instead of the gardener, which is, hey, here's some soil. Here's some nutrients, here's some water, here's some light, and you grow in whichever direction you want. And you know what? I'm going to provide safety so that you, the plant, child, can grow into whoever you want to be. And and to me, I'm looking at the child in my office as the gardened situation. I want to just provide those nutrients, sort of to your point, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I want to be able to provide those things for these kids and not try and guide their direction. Because invariably, I found that when I'm trying to always guide a direction, it's what I want, not what they want. And I think when it's what I want, then the healing process is disrupted because it's a control power variant there. I don't want to be in power. I want to be in connection with the patient at an equal opportunity for healthcare outcomes. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's super fascinating. And again, I think the the ultimate work that we're looking at here that you're doing is to try and get more folks to start to think the way you do. And again, I look back to 2007 as a genesis point for me to start seeing a different reality. And I, I I don't mean to put you on a pedestal, but in a lot of ways, I feel like that was the the beginning of, of this ability to see a new way. And I, I want more physicians to know and providers to know that what you're doing is the route that they should be looking at, the pathway to have self-care so they can be happy in the system. And I applaud your work because without your work, I think so many folks would just quit and, or even when they quit, then you're struggling with what do I do in, in the quit phase, right? Like, have you looked at that piece? That'd be an interesting one. Have you looked at the folks that have burnt out and quit and what they're actually doing with their lives? I have not. That's a great question. That'd be somewhere I'd love to see another outcome piece on that because I mean, these are folks who are all highly motivated right individuals and does burnout sap them of any desire to continue in the process that I laughed at if I quit medicine, I'd be a bartender uh, <laughs> because that, that'd be right by my happiest moment talking to folks. So, yeah. yeah. So do you think we've hit an inflection point with, with burnout? So we're going to start cresting. Or are we still on the way up? I think COVID to your point screwed that up big time, but are we inflecting? Are we still struggling? 
I think I think we're going to see improvement, and part of that is self preservation that I have to believe that I still see much more variability between and even inside of systems like the mean, you know, your Medscape puts out this survey on, you know, they, they survey 10 to 15,000 docs and say what the burnout rates are by specialty. But to me, those are a myth because each system I go into is different and the local specifics matter a lot more than the mean. Um, when that variability decreases and more specialties inside the same institutions are all improving, then we'll know we've really, we've really achieved something. And I, I'm seeing it, in, you know, there's a, like I said, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. There's a lot of ways to be helpful. And, and as you walk into an institution, let's say you walk in, from from Chartist, you're hired, you walk into Novant, that low-hanging fruit, what are you picking off first? I mean, a, clearly by your Maslow's hierarchy of these, I'm assuming you're going after the physical and mental health space, but what are you really, what are you attacking first? Say, hey, you know, primer, boom. Great, yeah. I'm kind of doing two things simultaneously. One is we're using the model as you just suggested. You know, where are we going to start? What's What can be done here quickly? But the other thing we're going towards is guiding leadership philosophically to help them reduce the cynicism in their system so the docs are reclaiming some sense that the things that matter to them, they're going to have more influence on and are going to get addressed. You know, because I think that's part of what is burdening so many clinicians is a feeling like, don't they get how important this is? How come no one is doing anything? And when you begin to see things actually happen that really make a difference in your day-to-day -day life, like oh they they do actually care about this they they I I matter, um, and that that reduction in cynicism, in addition to the specific things that improve, I think is the that's kind of the secret sauce. Yeah, yeah. I think um, when we get the powers that be to truly understand the philosophy as you're speaking to it, and they can couple that to a financial solvency because that's the biggest piece the mbas aren't going to change it if they're going to lose money well the turnover retention rates you know we've talked about docs leaving keeping docs apps in particular like there's some places where that are losing their nurse practitioners and pas you know 30 percent of them turning over in a year stuff like that your your nurse turnover rates like there is it takes a huge amount of money to recruit yeah new new clinicians, especially in some particular specialties. So that has in instant return on investment potentially. Right, 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 right. So philosophical change and then the, the, the main focus on physical and, and, and mental health needs on the front end. And then as that stuff starts to peel away, then you get more granular on some of the other pieces, but that's the, the framework for going after it. Sort of where we start. Yeah. yeah. The dashboards are really helpful because often, you know, the physiologic and mental health stuff might be great, but, and, you know, it might be that people just feel really disrespected by a consult service or some people they interact with every day or the, the electronic health record or, you know, other pieces like that. So then it's attacking those, the specifics that matter and for whom. Yeah. You know, I think about to your earlier point way back in the beginning, the portal, 
you know, the, the comedy of the portal system. I laugh when I get these constant messages through the portal system that are just time consuming. And most of the time it's just like, you shouldn't be coming this way. I think, you know, the, the, the head of the company, the head of the hospital system should have a direct line from all patients to complaints. So the patient should be able to complain, email directly to the provide to the to the CEO, and let's see how much they like that portal system. I think that would be the way to wake up the the CEO to how much reality the docs are going through or the providers are going through with this portal system. I I I'm with you on that. I think the portal system has just caused more trouble than good. That people think the access is of of. I mean, I get sometimes I get some messages that I just don't, I'm like, just tell them to schedule an appointment. There's no way I'm answering those nine yeah. questions. Just yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's go. Final question. Unless you have something else you want to touch on that, yeah. that I didn't hit on. Final question is, is something I ask everybody. And what I want to know is if I give you a golden ticket and you could take that to Congress or the president of the United States and you get one thing changed. And while you're thinking of yours, I'll tell you mine. I am a huge proponent of nutrition being one of the main sources of distress in the child's body right now because 66% of the school food is what feeds our kids and school food is basically garbage and so I would ask the government to put chefs back in every school put real food back on the plate and make kids eat nourishing calories what would you ask for I'd probably ask for a single payer system interesting I, I think um I think it would eliminate so much unnecessary bureaucracy um, and additional work. And we would be able to learn more effectively from one another about new care models. And I just think it would help. Yeah, well, I guarantee you it would take away a lot of the waste. There's no doubt about that because there's so much waste. Uh, but I don't know if we'll ever get there. I think it's interesting. You're the second person in 75 interviews to say that. And uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things. There's there's something to be said about it. And there's some good ones out there. I mean, the Swedish model, the Scandinavian models, I think they're they're quite excellent. Just again, it's just doing it right is the key. I mean, we've proven in a lot of ways that sometimes even the Medicare systems are not great. So we'd have to have some really quality leaders at the top of a single payer when when. And then you wouldn't have an argument for me. Again, I want the patient at the center. If it somehow always puts the patient at the center and the funds are there for the patient at the center, I'm all, all, I'm all on board. It'd yeah. be great. Great. Well, I, again, I so appreciate you, Dan. Um, from the moment I met you until the time of today, I've watched your career and the amazing things you've done. And I, I want to applaud your courageousness of leaving academia. Um, that's not a small lift. And then to go out and blaze this new path with Chartists and all the other work you're doing is just, is something to be, um, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's excellent. And I'm, oh. I'm grateful for all the work you do. And I'm looking forward to watching you continue to just do amazing things for us providers so that we can all live a better life so that our patients get better care. So I'm going to give you the final word. Well, I've just so appreciated the time with you, old friend. All right, buddy. Have a great day. You too. So when I think about that conversation, I start to think about the providers of care that have suffered in the recent years to decades when it comes to dealing with providing health care in this modern environment. And I think a lot of folks have been through what they call the stages of grief. You expect to experience an amazing career, right? You go through all this training, 
to be the best version of yourself, studying long hours, giving up years and years of your life, in my case, seven years between 1992 and 1999. I was in medical school and then residency. And now I loved it. It was great. I learned a ton. I really enjoyed myself, but it was a long period of time to give up many, many hours of fun with friends and many of the things that I could have done instead of going and training. And then you come out with this anticipation of it's going to be this most amazing experience to be part of the healing process for others. And then as time goes on, depending on who you are and where you find yourself, you may run into a situation that is not what you expected. And then you may have to go through the stages of grief, initially denial, right? This can't be real. It's not what I signed up for. Maybe it's going to change. Maybe it's not what I expected. Maybe it's something different. Then you get into anger, right? Now I'm really frustrated by this. This is not good. I don't like this at all. I'm unhappy here. Then you get into depression. I can't really, you know, deal with this. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm not really dealing with it. Now, if you successfully find your way out, you will eventually go through the bargaining phase and finally you'll accept it and find a new norm, whatever that is. And that can be a really convoluted path or it can be a very direct path. But as we know, for many care providers, that path ends in tragedy, either with loss of job because of being in a situation where you have to quit to survive, committing suicide, um, really losing quality of life, and many other aspects that are not what would be expected after giving up so much time to be a healer in the modern medical system. I think of the reality of the gift that physicians are given, where I have the ability to be there at the first breath of a human life, as well as be there at the last breath of a human life and all the time in between. And the complexity of life that comes along with that. And knowing that you go through all this training with very little understanding and foreknowledge and training, frankly, specifically around what to do when death does occur, what to do when systems of medicine are burdensome and not nav navigatable for us. And so I think of this all in the context of all that we just talked about with Dr. Shapiro, and I find it heartening that we are now starting to have the conversation at least around what it's like to be a provider of care and, frankly, at times struggling. And we need to have these conversations because it's a very stressful job, and it's a beautiful job. Not to say it's a bad job. It's an incredibly beautiful job. To have that ability is unbelievable, but at times it is not great. And those times need to be dealt with, and we need to grieve through that process. I think Leo Tolstoy said it best. Only people who are capable of loving strongly can also suffer great sorrow. But the same necessity of loving serves to counteract their grief and heals them. I think that's pretty emblematic of what we need, what we Providers of care who love so much, who give so much, also need to know how to grieve and what to do during that period of time when something doesn't go according to plan. And again, I'm speaking primarily there of a bad outcome in medicine, but there's also this need to deal with the stressors of the current medical system that's very dysfunctional. We've taken the patient out of the center and we've put medicine in the center. I mean, excuse me, we've put money into the center. And that's not compatible as far as I'm concerned with provider health. We need to get back to a system that prizes the patient primarily overall, and then the providers have an ability to have self-care 
when things are not going according to plan with a patient's outcome. And then we'll be in a system, I think, that goes back to the way it was meant to be. Healthy healing for all. A unified approach where the provider and the patient are one in the context of helping the patient heal themselves. And that would be a beautiful thing. So for those of you listening to this, if it resonated with you, I hope you'll share this conversation with anybody you know in the healthcare space that can benefit from hearing these words. I know my time spent with Dr. Shapiro has been incredibly rewarding, and I am grateful to share his wisdom with the greater audience and anybody who touches anyone in this audience. And for that, again, I'm grateful. So I'll leave you with this. As always, hug those kids. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. As always, have a great day.